All right. Um, let's pray. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for um, your great grace to us. I'm sending a wonderful, merciful Savior to save and rescue us. Pray that we would follow him better because of your word to us today. We would follow him more sincerely. I pray that our sin of our heart that may be um, keeping us from following him well today would be revealed. And I pray that it would all be done to the glory of your name. pray this all in, in his name. Amen. Well, we've already talked a little bit about um, the greatest detective of all time, but I would like you guys to just spend a, a few minutes here in the, the beginning of this message to put your you know, spiritual detective hat on and ask or answer the question, does uh, uh, the following individual that I am about to describe pass the, uh, you know, the, the, the spiritual test? Does he, does he pass the, uh, you know, the, the salvation-o-meter test? Does he, does he have qualities that represent those of a, of, a true, of a true convert of Jesus Christ, a true follower of Jesus Christ? The, the person I'm going to describe, he, he had great energy for God. He had great endurance for God. He had great experiences with God. He even had great expectations of God. And by expectations, I mean he had, he had great faith in what God would do in the future because of his understanding of the Bible. He even had great emotions with reference to his sin. He, he, had, he had great energy, endurance, experiences, expectations, emotions. What do you guys think? What do you guys think? Now, you're probably already suspicious. But think, think about that list. That's a pretty impressive list, is it not? That would, be, that would be qualities of a believer that perhaps you would like to claim for yourself. That, that might be a list of virtues that you would cling to for assurance of salvation. I've got a lot of energy for God. I've got a lot of endurance for God. I see a lot of people around me not following Jesus anymore, but I am. I've got great experiences with God. There's been so many wonderful times that I've felt God's presence or experienced God's word. Great grace has been given to me. I, I, have, I have great expectations. I, I know a lot of Bible and I'm hoping for a lot of things in the future. And I even get emotional. I even get emotional about my sin. Seems like a pretty impressive list. But the person that this list belongs to is perhaps the singular greatest human tragedy in the history of mankind. Uh, that, is, that is the list that's describing that person. The person who is the greatest singular human tragedy. That's his list. Now... Now, growing up, you'd never think this of him. Growing up, he, he, he grew up as a, a son of a good Jewish father, had a really 
good Jewish father name. His father's name was Simon. Matter of fact, he grew up in the heartland of Judah, in, in southern Judah as well. If you were to kind of think about in today's age, where, where, do, you, where do you kind of like point to as the heart of the country? You, you think maybe of the Midwest or the spiritual heart of the country. You think of maybe the southeast, you know, the, the, the southern Bible belt, right? This man grew up in Judah, and not just Judah, but southern Judah, deep in Judah. And this man had a wonderful Jewish name. A Jewish name that everyone was naming their sons in those days. It was a, a derivative, or it was, it was akin to the name Judah, which means, you know, praise Yahweh, or Yahweh leads. But, and now I'm going to give away who this man is. As soon as you hear his name, you'll be like, oh man, that's a terrible name. <laughs> but it is akin to Judah. The, the, maybe the, the greatest name in, in uh, the, the Jewish expectation. But this man's name was Judas. Judas. And, his, and his, his kind of calling card, we kind of think of it as his last name, but really it was his location name, Iscariot which actually probably refers to his, his you know, home of origin. Uh, Iscariot could be referring to the Hebrew word ish, which is man, and kariath, which is a city in southern Judah. So he is, he is, he is Judas, the, the son of Simon, the man from kariath. That's who I want to talk to you about today. He had great energy for God. He had great endurance for God, experiences with God. He had great expectations for God. And he had even emotions in his sin when it was exposed. Now, why do I want to do this? It, to be honest, I, I have been meditating over Holy Week on the person of Judas. Now, kind of a crazy thing to meditate on, maybe perhaps you'd say, but I've found it very helpful and I wanted to share with you some of the, the, the thoughts that I had coming away from thinking about this man. He, he troubles me and I hope he troubles you too because I think he troubles us in a good way, in a helpful way. So this is what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to kind of walk through some of the basic uh, events of his life, kind of reveal some of these, these lessons that we learn kind of walk through some conclusions from the life of Judas. We're going to just do some considerations. I want you to consider a few things about Judas. And then if we have time, I'm going to open it up for questions. So all, all of the things that I didn't talk about, you can ask. So be thinking of any good questions you have about Judas. And then maybe after that, I can kind of pull it together in an application. Now that's a lot to do in 30 minutes, but we'll see. We'll see. Judas. Let's, let's, let's focus our attention on him today. Now, we're going to kind of jump around a little bit, so be ready with your Bible. Or, if nothing else, just be ready to mark down a few references, uh, just a few big pictures. I, I, I kind of name Judas, if he has a title for me in my mind, I, I name him as Judas the most trusted traitor. Or you could call him Judas the most trusted betrayer. He was a very trusted individual today. I want you to understand this, that Judas was trusted, and that made his treachery so painful. He was, he's a, a man who is actually fairly invisible for most of the Gospels. That doesn't mean he wasn't known. It seems clear 
that he was known by our Lord from the very beginning. It seems clear that our Lord picked Judas because he was the, pre, uh, the predetermined betrayer of Jesus, but he was not known to the other disciples. He, he didn't seem to be recognized as a betrayer until the very end when he was planting that kiss on the cheek of his master, at least to the other disciples. But, but, but he was, he's, he's marked out for us well in the Gospels, right? He's always, he's, always, he's always described when his name is mentioned as Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, basically. And his name always comes last in any list of disciples that you find. But he was trusted. And think about this. He had a seat of privilege. He was near our Lord for three years of his life. And not only was he near our Lord, but by the end, he was a trusted disciple by our Lord. To, to the point where uh, Jesus can look around the table during the Last Supper and say, one of you is a devil, and a matter of fact, that devil is dipping his bread with me, and none of the disciples even get it. That's how trusted Judas was. Think about that. Matter of fact, even the fact that he was sitting on the, on the side of Jesus, that he was sitting on the left-hand side, was actually a high place, place of honor, perhaps the highest place of honor at a feast like that. Judas was trusted. And Judas was even the man who you know was trusted with the money bag for Jesus and his disciples. Judas was the most trusted man and he was the betrayer. And the, the point is, it almost seems as though Judas himself is, is, is crafted in the hands of Satan to be the most cruel knife in the back of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is trusted. Matter of fact, he is a friend of Jesus. These are very interesting parallels that we see in the Old Testament. The, 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 psalm, the psalmist talks about his agony, his struggle, and perhaps these words are, are predicting the suffering of Jesus. Notice how the psalmist talks about his agony, his pain, because he is being betrayed by his friend. It says this in Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That is a painful treachery. He shared my bread. Now perhaps sharing bread doesn't mean anything to you. But in, in those days, to share bread with someone was to share fellowship with someone. You were the closest of friends. Or, or how about this, in, in Psalm 55, beginning in verse 12, it is not my enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has magnified himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal my close companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet counsel together walked in the house of God in the throng. Notice here, notice here. If you were an enemy, this would be easier. But it hurts 
because you were my friend. And Judas appears to be Jesus' friend. Notice he is, he is the most trusted of disciples. And, and what were those words that Jesus said to Judas on that night that Judas betrayed him? Friend. It's a cruel knife. Consider with me some of the things that Judas experienced. Consider with me some of the glories that Judas experienced. And and as you consider these things, think. Think. He he experienced the, the same calling that all of the other disciples experienced. We don't know exactly when Judas was called, but we have every, every evidence, according to Luke 6, that he was called when all the other disciples were called, which was right before the Sermon on the Mount. So that tells me he was probably called in the same way. He was probably called like the other disciples were called. What does that mean? Jesus personally went to him and said, you, Judas, I want you to follow me. And Judas willingly followed him. Judas wanted to follow him. Judas felt excitement, probably, in following Jesus. Consider this also. He heard the same preaching that all of the disciples heard. The same preaching. Do you realize? Think about this. Judas heard the Sermon on the Mount, every word. Judas heard the, 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 the call of the disciple every word. Uh, Judas heard the warnings about riches for the disciple every word. Uh, Judas heard those warnings about pride, arrogance, forgiving your brothers, and true humility. He heard those sermons about true greatness, being a servant of all. He heard all of those sermons. He even heard the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is predicting everything that's going to happen. The destruction of Jerusalem. The the faithlessness of many. He heard all of those sermons. Consider this, friend. Consider this. Judas heard the best preaching. Judas heard the best teaching. He had no excuse. But also, what what about this? What if this was the case? Judas maybe liked hearing preaching. You can't be around Jesus for three years and not have some sort of an appetite for hearing God's word. Maybe he found it interesting. Maybe he enjoyed the stories. Maybe he was thrilled about something, the truth that he thought was being revealed in that. Judas liked preaching. Judas liked teaching. And so that's a lesson to you. Liking to hear preaching, even loving to hear preaching, is no sure sign of salvation, is it? Hearing preaching, hearing a lot of preaching, is no clear evidence of a saving faith. He heard the same preaching, but also think about this. Yeah, this is just, I, I, I never think about this, but this is why I wanted to think about Judas this last week. I just, I just kind of walked my way through Jesus' life and was shocked 
Not only did he hear the same preaching, what else? He, he saw the same power as well, didn't he? He saw the same power as well. He saw all of those healings in an instant, from a distance, up close, touching lepers. He saw Jesus feed multitudes with a prayer. He, he, he saw Jesus speak into a dead tomb and saw a once dead man walk out. He saw that. He saw that. And think about this. He was in that boat when a yawning Savior silenced the storm. He saw it. He experienced that. He, he saw Jesus disarm and disable a legion of demons with his mouth. And he was in that boat, trembling with the other disciples. And the waves were lifting them up and down when he and all of them saw from a distance from that eastern shore, that Gentile shore where evil maybe was thought to roam. They saw something like a ghost coming to them, walking on the water, only to realize that it was Jesus himself coming to them in their distress, in their trouble. He saw all of that. Friends, Judas had a front row seat to three years of the power and majesty and the proclamation of the person of Jesus Christ. He saw it. And let that be a lesson to you. You can see a lot of great things. You can experience a lot of great things. You can even be convinced about a lot of great things. And it is no sure sign of true salvation. That's the things he experienced. But consider with me, consider with me a few other things. Consider with me all of the energy. Consider with me all of the endurance. Consider with me all the expectations that Judas had as well. Consider the the energy, the endurance, the expectation. I mean, once again, going back to it, he heard that sermon. Remember that sermon? In Matthew 8, the cost of discipleship sermon, where Jesus is calling disciples to follow him, and they're making excuses, or he's telling them, be careful not to follow me. Why? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You want to follow me? It's going to be hard. You want to follow me? You might miss out on an inheritance to follow me. You want to follow me? Your family might not like you. He heard that sermon about, hey, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Uh, Judas heard that message on the cost of discipleship. And, And Judas was even one of those disciples who went out. Remember that? Remember that story when the disciples go out and proclaim that the kingdom of God is near at hand? What do they do? They proclaim the power that Jesus has been performing to them. They're convinced by Jesus' power. And what is the message they're proclaiming? What? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they're even doing signs and wonders in Jesus' name. 
Was Judas there? I think so. He probably also then endured much trouble for the name of Jesus, right? And Jesus talks about when he's sending them out, he warns his disciples, hey, you are going to be rejected in some places. And in those places, you need to wipe the dust off of your shoes because they reject you. Uh, Judas endured tribulation for the name of Jesus. Matter of fact, turn over to John, the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, this is right around the feeding of the 5,000. John's Gospel records this, but gives us a little bit of an inside seat to it. John six sixty six. actually Jesus... There came a part in, in point in Jesus' ministry when he began to preach hard things. And, and, you, and you remember what the disciples say, right? These things that Jesus is saying are too hard. He is what? He is too hard to follow. If you follow Jesus in your natural strength, he is too hard to follow. And remember, many disciples in John 6, 66, John 6, 66, began to not follow him anymore. Look what it says in verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go? The twelve, Jesus said this too. And of course, Peter being the leader that he was, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Think about this. Judas endured, continued following Jesus when many people walked away from Jesus. Friend, Judas endured three years of following Jesus. And perhaps there were many a night following Jesus where he too had no place to lay his head because he was with Jesus. So that's a lesson to us, isn't it? Sticking with Jesus for a long time, longer than other people, isn't necessarily a sure sign of salvation. And liking to be in Christian circles is also not a clear sign of salvation, is it? Being a hard worker for Jesus and enduring much for Jesus is not a sure sign of salvation. Gifts, abilities, strengths are also not a sure sign of salvation. Here's an interesting question. Why did Judas endure so long? Why did he keep going? Uh, the answer, remember that? Because he had great expectations for God. Because he believed things. You can endure things, hard things, based on faith and expectations of the future. You can even be a Judas and endure things for a long time if you have faith. And this is a side comment. But if Judas can endure with the truth of God's word, how much more should you? Judas endured a long time because of the glorious kingdom 
theology that he believed. Perhaps this, he, he believed what the Old Testament said. Well, on Sunday nights, we're learning about what the Old Testament says. It's, it's not just a spiritual fluff pie in the sky kind of kingdom. It's an actual physical kingdom where the Messiah, the promised one, that snake crusher from of old, finally comes, destroys the devil, and rules over the world. He believed in those promises because they're not hard to read. And he hoped in them. And that gave him endurance. But you know what probably gave him more endurance? If you ask me, it's because he saw the power of God in Jesus. He saw all of those signs. Remember what these miracles are? These are previews of coming attractions. These are previews of the kingdom to come. He saw Jesus. He saw Jesus feed a legion of people with his word. It's easy for Jesus to feed an army. It's easy for Jesus to feed a nation. He saw Jesus with a word also disarm a legion of demons. How much easier would it be for Jesus to disarm a legion of Roman soldiers? Friend, consider it. Judas endured much for Jesus because he kept saying to himself, it is will be worth it all when Jesus takes control of Jerusalem. Because he had hope in the future. He had great expectations for God. And let it be a lesson as well. Willingness to suffer for Jesus, patience for Jesus, endurance for Jesus is no sure sign of a saving faith either. Well, let's consider, let's just consider the, the turning point in Judas's life. What changed? Well, I have an argument here. I don't think Judas joined Jesus with a three-year plan. I don't think he said, you know what, I'm going to stick with Jesus for three years, see some sights, travel the world, you know, get some great experiences, some great energy from Jesus, and then I'm going to turn on him for a handful of coins. I don't think that was actually his plan in the beginning. That's not, that's not a plan that would enable you to endure very long. It seems like the 30 shekels of silver was kind of a last-minute move, if you ask me. But possibly, when we look at the turning point, and as we look through the Gospels, perhaps we see a turning point in Judas when we, this is possible, the first time we actually hear Jesus mention a devil among the twelve is during that feeding of the 5,000 in John 6. If you're still there, great. This is the first time Jesus mentions a devil among them, and perhaps this is the first hint that we have of something maybe changing in Judas. Why? Well, it says in Mark, it says in Mark uh, 6, 45, you can just stay in John for a minute. It says in Mark 6, 45, that immediately after, after this, after Jesus had fed the 5,000, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and cross to the other side. And we see why in John 6. We see why in John 6. Why was he forcing the disciples? Strong verbs used there in Mark. Why is he compelling them, forcing them into a boat? Well, there was a messianic kingdom fever pitch we see in John 6. The crowd was ready to anoint him king there. Right then and there. 
They were excited about Jesus. Once again, and they're probably using the same Judas logic here, right? He can feed a multitude. Then he can feed a kingdom. He can disarm demons. Then he can disarm the Romans. Let's make him king. But Jesus does something that is absolutely contrary to what Judas was expecting of him, doesn't he? He makes the disciples get in the boat and leave. To put it in our vernacular, Jesus kills the party. Just just devastates the flame. Dumps water all over that party. And it becomes clear to Judas, perhaps at that moment, Perhaps at that moment, he is, he, is, he is saying to himself, why is Jesus not doing what I want him to do? You ever think that way? Why doesn't Jesus solve my problems the way I want him to solve it? Here's the origin of that question. It's a, it's a Judas question, probably. Jesus isn't saving this world like I think he should. Here's an opportunity, and he's not taking advantage of it. Why is he not doing that? Jesus, simply stated, was not the Savior Judas needed. Therefore, Jesus was not the Savior Judas wanted. He didn't need him. He didn't want him. And real quick, consider how he betrayed Jesus even. I suggest did already, and I still hold to it, that the betrayal of Jesus by Judas was meant to be painful. It was meant to be painful uh, by Satan himself, surely, trying to keep Jesus from the cross. And I would also suggest to you that it was meant to be painful from Judas too. Why? Because Judas wanted Jesus to pay for wasting three years of his life. Endurance. Energy, expectation, wasted. He, of course, went to the chief priests. He went to the chief priests after a more likely turning point. And, and this is where I would point you to. Turn over to, to John chapter 12, actually. Turn over to John chapter 12. He went to the chief priests after this moment. This is, uh, John chapter 12 is uh, a moment after, it is after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, but it's right before the triumphal entry. Now, if you're reading through your Bible, you'll probably notice that Mark actually places this after the triumphal entry, and that's because Mark is trying to make a connection between this woman and her gift and the betrayal of Jesus. He's, he's trying to put those right next to each other because they're significant in the, turning of G, in the turning of Judas, but also they're significant in the contrast that they present. But probably this event happened before the triumphal entry, and this is the event that was surely the turning point in Judas if not already at the feeding of the 5,000. I'll read John 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary 
the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, then took a litra of perfume, a very costly, pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, the, the quantity there, uh, a litra of perfume, is referring to a pound of perfume. And we see later that this is the equivalent of a year's wages. Now, I mean, I would spend a lot of money for my wife. I'm not sure if I would spend a year's wages on a, bar, a jar of perfume. But this might mean that Lazarus was fairly wealthy. Perhaps this was a family heirloom. It was a very, it was a very costly perfume. A year's wages? And, and what, notice what Mary does. She dumps it all on Jesus. Why? To, to demonstrate her love for him, her affection for him. And, and, and here's another thought. I mean, if any of you have perfume or if you have cologne, you'll totally get this. You're only supposed to do a few dabs. That's all that's necessary. Matter of fact, I spray three squirts. Uh, two squirts is enough. But if I spray three squirts in our room, Serena has to zip up her hazmat suit and run for the exits because it's just intoxicating. It's like suffocating her lungs, right? Have you ever poured out a whole jar of perfume on the floor? It's like, oh, no. <laughs> This is too much. It's, it's, almost, it's almost annoying how, how strong the smell is. Can you imagine how powerful and strong this aroma would have been in that room? It would have been suffocating almost. And, and you, you almost feel like Judas is frustrated and angry too, but for a different reason. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was going to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box. He used to take from it what was put into it. Notice here. Notice here. Judas is not only bitter at Jesus for not doing what he wants Jesus to do, as far as messianic plans go, but now he is angry at Jesus for taking away what he really loves, which is personal gain. Personal gain. Once again, Jesus was not the Savior he needed or wanted, and now he just wanted to destroy Jesus in the most bitter revenge story you can think of. What did Judas do? He purposed to betray him. He went to the chief uh, the chief priests, and he only gets about 30 shekels of silver. The contrast there between 300 denarii and 30 shekels is staggering, right? He lost out on a lot, and now all he can get for Jesus is 30 shekels, the price of a common slave, not a very large amount. It's almost like the chief priests knew he was desperate, knew that he had had enough with Jesus, and he wanted out now, now. All he could get. And then he goes to the Last Supper with this change in his pocket in order to not arouse a suspicion. And notice what happens to him at the Last Supper. He has his feet washed by the Lord himself. And friend, let that be a lesson to you. 
You can receive good, generous, wonderful gifts and blessings from God, and that is no true sign of true saving faith either. And after escaping the supper, he's almost revealed, and he knows his time is short, so he goes and he gets a large detachment of troops and, and brings them to the Garden of Gethsemane where he knew Jesus would be. And he meets Jesus there, and he greets our Savior with a kiss, a kiss of friendship, and then he fades into the background. And then he fades into the background. Notice, Judas had energy for God. He had endurance for God. He had experiences, expectation, even emotions. But what happened to all of these qualities once Jesus wasn't doing what Judas wanted him to do? He used all of those qualities to betray and murder Jesus. Those are not sure signs of true saving faith. And I would suggest to you that Judas followed Jesus always with a betrayer's heart. But think about about this. It it wasn't always a heart saying, I want to turn Jesus in. But it was a betrayer's heart in the sense that I am here for me. I am here for my own personal advantage. That is a betrayer's heart. As soon as Jesus isn't doing it for me, I will find something better that will. He followed Jesus as a means to an end, not as the end in itself. Um, I like to read Pilgrim's Progress. I find the story very interesting, and I find every time I read through it, um, a, another character that really stands out to me for a different way, in an interesting way. And, and most recently reading through it, the character that stood out to me was actually Pliable. Now, now notice, Pliable leaves with Christian right out of the city right away, and he has great energy and enthusiasm for God. Why does he have such energy to follow Christian to the celestial city? Why? Well, because he wants good things. He's heard good things about the city, and he wants those things too. He's heard the glories of heaven. Matter of fact, he wants Christian to repeat to him the glories of heaven. But he quickly and suddenly gives up. Why? Because the sorrows of the Christian life appear. And he is disappointed by the journey. And actually, and actually, when he turns on Christian, there's a cruelty to it. There's an evilness to it. He leaves Christian in this bog of despond by himself and doesn't even help Christian out as if he wants to get vengeance on Christian. Why doesn't Pliable endure to the end? Why doesn't he continue to the end? Well, because he didn't have the problem that Christian had. He didn't have the need that Christian had. He wasn't looking for a savior that Christian was looking for, was he? He didn't have a weight on his back. And let me suggest to you that you will not follow Jesus all the way to the end. If you do not need Jesus to remove your sin and take the place of your sin, if that is not your ultimate need, you are just a ticking time bomb waiting to happen. There's a song, Fanny Crosby, Near the Cross. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain 
free to all, a healing stream comes from Calvary's mountain. Near the cross, a trembling soul, love and mercy found me. There the bright and morning star shed his beams around me. Near the cross, near the cross, be my glory ever. Till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river. If you do not have a burden on your back, Jesus is not the Savior you need. He's not the Savior you're, you're going to want, and you will turn on him in the end. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for the, the attentiveness of these students, and please bless them with this word in their hearts. 